Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, you're listening to Talking Books, and I'm Susie Wilde. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. It's a bumper August edition with an interview with director, scenographer, curator, educator, writer, and national treasure Pamela Howard and the co-author of her memoir, Pavel Drabek. But here in the bookshop, we will be joined by Catherine McInnes, whose book, Snow Windows, has just been published. Excellent. We'd better crack on then, Tim. So what have you been reading, Tim? Well, as usual, Susie, I've been reading a fairly eclectic uh, bunch of things this month. I uh, read a strange um, book called General Jack's Diary, by, by, which is edited by, by John Terrain. Now, General Jack um, was a soldier during the First World War, and he... Uh, started so the the book is a sort of trench diary. It goes from the beginning of the war to the end of the war because he, he was there for the whole time. Um, and he started off as, as the most junior captain in his his regiment, and he finished as a general, um, uh, running uh, commanding a, a brigade. So it's quite a, it's quite a it's quite a uh, fascinating read. It's out of print, sadly. You can't can't get hold of it anymore. But uh, but I, I picked it up somewhere, and I, I really enjoyed that. I read Never by Ken Follett. Now, I'd never read a Ken Follett before, um, and I thought it was about time I did, because uh, he's one of the best-selling authors in the world. Um, it's a contemporary thriller. It's about a possible World War III, um, and it's very long, <laughs> like all his books. It's about 900 pages or something, but it, um, and it takes a little while to get going, but once it got, gets going, it's a, it's a cracking read. I read a book called We All Want Impossible Things by Catherine Newman, an American writer, and that's coming out next year, and so I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that then. Um, but it's a, it's a novel about dying, um, set in a hospice. But Cheery. With, but with lots of humour. It's very, very funny, actually. But um, So it's a bit like in Sorrow and Bliss in that, in that way. And it's, a, it's a dark subject, but we're told with, with, with humour. Um, but more, more later. All the Broken Places by John Boyne. Um, he did the Boyne Striped Pyjamas, and if you remember that, yeah. years ago now. And um, he's had it in his head all this time that he wanted to tell the story of the sister. Because I don't know if you remember the story, there's a brother and a boy and a girl. Uh, and what happens to her? It starts in the contemporary world, where she's a very old lady living in London. Uh, and it goes back and tells her story in different parts. But also there's a contemporary part to it, you know, which is which is important to the story as well as being... So but it isn't suspenseful. We know she we know makes she, we it. We know she makes it. Uh, but she has a pretty extraordinary life, um, full of guilt and uh, but mm. uh, it, it's it's a it's a cracking read actually um, and lastly I read I'm st- the book I'm reading at the moment is is Lessons by Ian McEwan which is coming out um, in a month or two's time uh, and I'll tell you more about that when I've actually read it I'm only about 100 pages in so I'll tell you more next time but I'm really enjoying it so far well thanks to you um, I've obviously been reading the books of our interviewees but you suggested The Love of My Life by Rosie Walsh that really appealed to me as a concept of um, somebody who writes obituaries finding out quite a lot that he didn't want to know about his wife Um, and it just I don't know whether it's because um, the woman is who reminds me of me quite a right. lot. Although so you're, not, you're not married to an obituary writer, though. And I'm not currently married to an obituary writer. But things like singing out of tune and her just her general demeanour um, right. had 
shades. But that's all I'm going to say about that. But honestly, I do. I really recommend that to people. I think it's great because sometimes you can have a really good idea that just fizzles. But I think it's very well written as well. Um, And the one I absolutely loved was Louise Penny, The Madness of Crowds, which is the very latest in the Inspector Gamache series. Now, I've talked about this before because it's long been one of my favourite audiobooks. And then they changed the narrator. And I really didn't get on with the second narrator. Isn't it funny? So I've switched over to actually reading the books. And I also love reading them. At first, I found it quite strange. But after a while, I really warmed up to it. And I loved it because I was reading it while we had the heat wave here. And it's set around Christmas and New Year in Canada. So it's just wonderful. And every time I felt hot, I would read about snowball fights and icicles. (laughs) And it really helped. And so she's just, my she's just written a um, a book with Hillary Clinton, hasn't she? Yeah, just a while Thriller. ago. Yeah, I read that as well. I think that was one of my current reads. It was good, you know, it's pacey thriller. But I I think when you write a series for as long as she has about Inspector Gamache, she knows the characters. We know the characters really well. So it's more like The Archers, that nobody does anything because it's a kind of theme this time. It's absolutely coming out of character. And she was writing it during the pandemic and it was really interesting to read, though she's set it post-pandemic, it brought up a lot of the anxieties and the feeling that the world had changed that I think we're trying to write out of history a little bit now. Tim, the other thing I should add about what I've been reading at the moment is that I'm a judge for the British Fantasy Society Awards, which is hilarious really because I said, oh, I'll read novels or watch film because as you know I love both um but actually I'm a judge for the magazine so I've been reading um a whole shed load of fantasy magazines which I'm not allowed to name until we have a chosen winner um but that's been really fascinating uh, I want to think so that, that these are uh animated stories are they, are they no they're... no they're um they're Pure magazines, which are some are only digital, but most have a digital presence and hard copy. I'm actually showing a rather grisly one to Tim at the moment with a skull on the front of it. I won't name it, but it contains short stories, flash fiction, poetry, reviews of books and films, and so on. And we have to decide on the quality of the graphics, but they're unusually don't have much of a graphic novel within them I mean sometimes they do but usually they don't but there's all sorts of poster art and so on is very important so that's been a shed load of reading this month I can imagine so we're very lucky today to have Catherine McInnes here with us to talk about her new book Snow Widows So, first of all, Catherine, tell us a bit about what the book is about. It's about uh, the five women behind the team that uh, got to the South Pole with Captain Scott in 1912. So the women are three wives and two mothers, because two of the men were bachelors. So if you can think of the famous photograph, which is a selfie, actually, which is uh, of five men standing, um, looking very frozen and uh, slightly dejected at the South Pole, that it's the women that were their confidants. So the way that it's written is it's the unofficial story of 
the trip to the South Pole, which had a tragic ending. All five of those men died. So why did you decide to write the story? Um, I wrote this story because my husband climbed Everest in 2006 and we had three small children and I uh, was going to ask other wives of explorers who were taking big risks how they felt and how they'd managed. And I started by asking uh, women whose husbands were were climbing or trekking or doing whatever they're doing and it was just too painful they were all trying to be too brave and it was too self-edited and so I thought right I'm going to pick some people who are completely dead and won't be offended <laughs> and so these people are very dead uh, which is good in a way but uh, they still have families and those legacies have a very long um, lasting sort of life so they are still the great great grandson of whoever it is so i had to be quite careful still it was it wasn't straightforward it and was a herculean task though wasn't it catherine because weren't you researching it for 10 years yes i had to research it for a very long time and the good thing about that is that when i started many of the people who had known the snow widows were still alive now only one of them is. So that is very interesting because when you have a live link to one of these people, you find things out about them that you wouldn't be able to find from an archive. So I can have one character that comes out of the letters of an archive, but that can be quite different to me asking somebody, what was Kathleen Scott like? And an actual in-person uh, memory is, is very different sometimes. Have so you got an example? Really lucky. Um, well, with Kathleen Scott... Um, James Lees Milne, who was one of her friends, said she comes out of history very badly. She was a very uh, fun woman to be with, but she made these outrageous comments. And so it's quite easy to, um, you know, stereotype her as a kind of slightly um, tyrannical lady. Um, but then when I spoke to her son, Wayland Kennett, so her second son, she was the only one of the five who ever got married again, um, he um, told me about her and said that it, it was always laughter in this house because he was still living in his family home and he described her in a completely different way so that was good because I had a bit of balance to it That's so interesting because uh, it's like I suppose in the, in the modern world of social media you, 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 see, you read somebody's tweet you go, yeah. God what an awful person and actually they're, they're a normal person but they've just been taken out of context or yes, yes. something like that you know, yes. so it's, it's really interesting to get a, get a first hand uh, yes knowledge of somebody. And you made her very sexy, I have to say, which I Did think I? is wonderful. Well, I think she was phenomenally sexy. I mean, I, I just would quite like to have seen this extraordinary effect that she had on women, on men, not on, not on women. Well, she, she really, really had an effect women. on women, Yes, you know? yes they, in the opposite way, that they, they, you know, she loathed women, but she, yes, men generally fell in love with her in the most unbelievable way, everybody from Asquith to the milkman. I mean, so the, no, cowboys. the cowboys, to the in, cowboys, in the West Coast. all yes. the cowboys in California, <laughs> it's just incredible. So she would have been very interesting. But there again, you see, I said to Elizabeth Jane Howard, who was her daughter-in-law, because that's Peter Scott's first wife, and Elizabeth Jane Howard was a novelist, and I said to her because she was alive when I started doing this research, what was she actually like? And um, Elizabeth said, I've seen her working and she is a bit of a tease. It's quite deliberate. She knows how to set it up. She flatters men until they fall in love with her. It's not necessarily all chemistry. It is a kind of slight, not calculating, but it's a conscious 
subconscious thing, which is very interesting. All these things you find out, but you know, it's a it's a different century in a way. It's a hundred years ago, so I'm just so pleased to have been able to speak to a couple of people who really knew her. How fascinating! Because actually, there's there's a lot in the, uh, of the history in the book is actually about misogyny. In fact, isn't it? It's a lot of the it the is. reaction to these yes. women was by the uh, by the RGS, the Royal Geographical yes. Society, and and other other people in the press and things. It's, uh, so that's it's quite a contrast between Kathleen, who was this, this dynamic um, sculptor, mm-hmm. uh, art, great, great artist, really, and, 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 um, and at the same time you have this relation that the women are perceived in a, in a very poor way by the powers that be. Absolutely, and what I've tried to do is to give you the historical context because at the same time it was the suffrage movement. So... In an extraordinary uh, confluence of events, when the Terra Nova eventually returned in 1913, the government realised that there was going to be quite an outpouring of grief and quite a lot of demonstrations by the suffragettes for Emily Davidson, who was killed by the King's horse. And so they knew there was going to be this funeral march, marching through Bloomsbury, everybody in white dresses. And so they specially got the Terra Nova to come back at the same time and they laid on trains to Cardiff so that they could try and uh, kind of direct attention to the Terra Nova coming back and these stalwart women who were kind of, you know, bravely carrying on and not making a, not making a fuss and, and weren't bounders because they considered the suffragettes to be bounders. So they deliberately divided attention. Well, so it could date very bad news of the, yes. sp- the spin doctor's uh, way of seeing things. But also the class elements. So mm. certainly misogyny, but even within that, not just for the, the, the women, but the men. Mm. And with the dreadful repercussions of that. It's it? dreadful. And it's worse than I've written because some reviews have said that I've perhaps made too much of it. Uh, Lois was the only person who was the petty officer's wife and she was really struggling when Taff gave up his salary in order to be able to save for the second year and the girl who was on the beach with her when she got the telegram of the news of her husband's death in 1913 spoke to this chap that I spoke to so it's kind of almost a live link it's just one removed and he said she sold all her furniture she had nothing they were you know absolutely nothing and also very tragically i didn't say this but her family until very recently were still bullied about the fact that um her husband was considered to be lower class and therefore not able to be as brave and either sacrifice himself like oates did to save the rest or to be able to reach into the library of his mind and stop himself sort of dying from boredom or the fact that he was so devastated to have been beaten to the pole by Amundsen. So so John Evans, who is still alive now, was terribly badly bullied at school. Terribly badly bullied. It's, it's not possible to overstate that. So it was even worse than I've written for the class element of it. Horrendous. So, mm. well, nothing about the book is that it's got these got these five stories which you've arranged so that uh, events happen both at the pole and back in the UK or in, or in New Zealand where some of the some of the, the women are, um, and you interlock them so that we ha- we have the story in, in told in a chronological <coughs> way, but by by these all these different voices. That must be quite a challenge. It was an amazing challenge, and it required a lot of post-it notes. Um, and sellotape because if you put a post-it note on a mirror which is what I was using after a couple of days the stickiness goes and it 
falls off and I had to keep control so I had post-its and sellotape but to try and get this story to work I wanted it to be have a strong narrative drive so it had to be according to the it's only from 1910 to 1913 the main bit of the story is just compressed into that time Um, and so I'm trying to go between the northern hemisphere where for example when it's summer in the southern hemisphere it's winter so when the women are able to move about in the summer in the northern hemisphere the men are effectively it's like lockdown they're in a they're kept in but by the weather not by covid and they have to entertain themselves in a way that women were expected to in that era so playing the piano playing the pianola sewing painting drawing writing so it's this amazing thing which Francis Spufford has called sympathetic equivalence and so that was the main concept I had in my head when I was trying to get these stories to you know to be able to make one story out of two incredibly different stories two different hemispheres amazing and also you've written it all in the in the present tense so it it kind of sort of seamlessly narrates through the story well I hope I hope that that works it is the first biography to be in present tense so I really hope it works and the reason I did it is because when I spoke to Wayland Kennett um, I was in their house in uh, Bayswater Road which as I said is the family home where uh, he lived with his mother Kathleen Scott Um, and so when I said to Wayland what was your mother like he said well he quite old with an elderly mind beautiful amount of um you know he could recollect things very clearly from the past but he said my mother is standing over there and this is the sculpture table and there's a lamp there and this is a maquette of the thing she's working on and it was spine tingling because it brought it completely to life for me and I wanted this biography to be able to use all the senses and so I've written it using fictional techniques but it is utterly non-fiction so when I mention something as an aside like Captain Oates dreaming of caramel creams it was caramel creams he was de- dreaming of, even though it's out of quotes. It wasn't biscuits. It was specifically that. So I really have tried to make it, well, I have made it as non-fiction, as a, a normal past tense. I think because we're used now to historians using the present tense, mm-hmm. it, it does absolutely bring it to life. I had no idea it was the first time it's been used in a biography. Yeah, well, I, have, I don't it's know almost another essential one. to yes. this. Yes, I don't know another one, but it was quite scary to do. Oh, okay. But it wouldn't work any other way. Yeah. I kept on trying to put it into the past tense and make it more conventional. It just kind of popped back into that. It, it was a very odd thing. Well, you've answered one of my questions, in fact, because one of the things that I absolutely love is the amount of detail that you've, yes. you've absolutely got. We are so there. Not just the use of the present tense, but things like going into a room and smelling fresh paint. Yes. Well, now I know you have researched so thoroughly. How on earth did you manage to get keep control? Keep control of it. I tried to write it in scenes a bit, and I tried to use all five senses. And one of the ways that I tried to control it was that each couple has one sense. And nobody has seen this particularly yet, but that there are several techniques. I did spend a decade writing this, so I have thrown everything at it, but that's one of the techniques. So if you read it, you will be able to see that each couple particularly majors on one sense. Um, but what you mean that becomes their sort of so, objective yes, correlative? So smell is, is one of them, or taste is one of them, okay. or you know, touch is one. Touch is the Scots one, because he misses 
her physically. And she's a sculptress. And, also, and she's a sculptress, so she's always pressing clay, or she's, she's very, very physical. But also, when he writes about her, he, he misses her physically. They, they were madly in love. They were really only just married, and they had had, a, you know, a baby. Um, and he, you know, he often talks about just, just imagining her face in the clouds or... You know, she was definitely there with him in some sense. It's incredible. So I know this book is, is actually about, about the women. It's not yeah. about, about the men. Yeah. But obviously the, the million-dollar question is, was it all Scott's fault they didn't get <laughs> Somebody has told me that there is a book coming out specially about the dogs. You could say that yeah. the whole problem was that the dogs didn't get there to bring them, as the, the word in, at that time was sucker. Uh, so they didn't bring them food and medication because they didn't go far enough south. You could say that was the problem. And then there weren't enough dog drivers who were experts at the base. Was that Scott's fault or was it because they couldn't do it? They hadn't trained, they weren't capable of doing it. Or was it that uh, Teddy Evans, that's a whole other book about that, which is called um, Why Didn't They Ask Teddy? Um, and Teddy Evans was given instructions to bring the dogs further south, instructions he never passed on. Could it have been his fault? Could Scott's instructions have been okay? I mean, it's almost endless. It, that's that's just one part of it. Or was it the weather? Was it unusually freezing? Was it the longest blizzard ever and sub-zero, like minus 60? Was that the reason that they died? But, but he also but, took five people and there were only yes. provisions for four. So you... Well, there were provisions for eight to come back and he took one extra person with him. So there were five. But he told the three that were going back to specially leave out one section of the provisions right. so that it should have been equal. Um, but then he and Wilson both felt that Evans had taken more than his share but that was edited out of the diary. Amundsen made it, so yeah. so uh, so why didn't Scott? I mean, that's the, I suppose that's I know there's this the, the dogs, the dog and the, debate, and they, the, oh. the whole dog debate, but also the attitude that Scott had, which was this kind of um, the Edwardian stiff upper lip yeah. sort of. Uh, I don't know. He was he was he was a man of his time, but almost heroic failure, almost a romantic concept of the failed hero. I think was very. I mean, you've brought out so well how depressive he was yes, and how yes. terrified um, his mm. wife was of their son being depressed, yes, exactly. like his You've father. Inheriting that it really yeah. came up this yeah. like a faulty gene, bad blood. Yeah. I, I thought yeah. that was yeah. really well worked. Louisa Young, who has written the biography of Kathleen Scott, and she's the only one of the five women who has had a biography written about her before apart from the one I wrote but anyway but um, he, she calls it a great task of happiness so Kathleen Scott's whole life was about a kind of pathological desire to be happy and for everybody around her to be happy and she just dropped people who couldn't kind of live up to her idea of that so you're right it's a really odd thing but then my grandmother weirdly enough has has no happier woman ever lived on her gravestone she died in, died in childbirth with dad and I think perhaps at that time there was something that meant that happiness was what you were aiming for. And not hedonism, just the self-control uh, not to be self-pitying and to sort of refine life into being able to be happy about it. It's really very extraordinary. I don't think anybody can really nail it, but it's a, I wonder what it is now. What, what is it that we're all aiming for? that we'll be able to look back and think, well, why were we? Why was that so important? Mm. 
Anyway, I just had to think. The other thing I did, I did want to talk about were the animals. Um, yes. And one of the things that I found really hard to read, because you so brilliantly did it, were the ponies and how they suffered, even in the first storm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they were really only fit for the knacker's yard. So mm-hmm. there's another case where probably somebody got it wrong. Let's not necessarily point well, it was Scott, every finger at Scott. Because Oates said, as you point out, Oates says that, you know, who is a cavalry officer and who knows about horses and knows how which horses they should have they should have bought rather than the rather than the useless ones that they did buy, and how to look after them and how to get the best out of them, and uh, so yeah so the, yeah there's, there's there's question marks there isn't there? There are I, that's one of the bits I really enjoyed writing because <laughs> Oates was very dyslexic, never passed any exams, but his mother Caroline Oates, who was a formidable woman. Um, spoke to the wives of the generals and eventually got him a place in the army. So it was a real female kind of, you know, old girls network. Um, and uh, he passed his veterinary exam, so he was very good at analysing horses. And so I have quoted verbatim his analysis of the horses that Scott took. And that's what I really wanted to try and do with this story as well, because it is a tragedy, but I hope I've put enough comedy into it, because many of these men and women were very witty um, and it's very funny, particularly the oats, extremely droll. And so, yes, uh, those the horses weren't up to it, but then there shouldn't have been horses there at all. Yeah. I would argue that um, Shackleton went in at the Nimrod expedition and he took horses. He said that the white horses, or the greys, <laughs> had performed best. And so um, Scott decided he would take those because he would build on Shackleton's experience. But actually, he never thought, well, it won't take any. It just didn't kind of occur to them. But I'm it, being cautious because I'm a Shackleton. Oh, are um, you? By yes. um, maiden name. Oh, by maiden so, name, yes. yes. So I'm wild now, Shackleton then. Yes. So it's interesting how I was always brought up to slightly, well, not slightly, very much sneer at Scott. Yes. And that he was, he was the failure and Shackleton was the triumph, as you yes. would expect my father to be, you know, triumphalist. Yes. yes. And my uncle Ernest. Um, yes. And it fascinated me how there was always that competitive element, which comes out in the book, is how Scott talked about having to carry Shackleton. Yes, uh, our invalid. Our invalid. And that invalid is, is definitely what, you know, it, it sowed a seed very early on. But then there's probably even more to that. If you go down the Shackleton story, there's probably more to that because at one point on the when they got to furthest south so in 1903 so this is Wilson Shackleton and Scott um Scott called somebody uh, he called him a bloody fool and at that point that was an incredible sneer terribly you know terribly bad thing to say about somebody and so Shackleton his subordinate called him a bloody fool back and that in the Navy was insubordination and the whole expedition, so this is the Discovery Expedition, was being run along naval lines. So Scott said he could either go back in chains or I can say that he has scurvy. I'm paraphrasing. That's how he was sent back as an invalid. Uh, So it was because he had been insubordinate on this trip where there were only three of them going to the further south but there were definitely two camps, the sort of Scottite and the Shackleton thing. I would probably say with all these um, polar trips, it's always a competition between two people. Most recently, somebody came to a talk of mine at the Travellers Club and she is a polar explorer. She's a lady. 
And the, the interesting thing about this uh, is that she said there were two single unsupported um, female uh, um, explorers aiming for the South Pole. She was fine until two days before she heard a radio message that said that the other woman had got there first. And she said, you know, she's perfectly well brought up and she's a good loser, but she suddenly felt every ache, every pain. She was suddenly starving. She just couldn't find the energy to even get out of her sleeping bag, get out of the tent, pack it up. And she'd been absolutely fine up to that point. So I do think it has a big effect on a, in a kind of cellular level. It that, kind of that, drives you yes, on. it drives you on. When until you, you lose. So Shackleton had the ghostly pacemaker of Shackleton. Uh, of uh, Scott's um, diary, then it, then they then Scott did it according to Shackleton's last diary. Anyway, this is about the men. But afterwards, after this expedition, the women had to unravel all that. So they were the people who were the custodians of the information. They were able to say whether the diaries were published or not. So Caroline Oates lied and said that Captain Oates had never written a diary. She perjured herself. She just decided that was the best way to do it, to d deny that it existed. And that's a really fascinating story because the first person outside the family to be shown that diary is a lady called Sue Lim, who I met. And uh, he was, you know, around and brilliant. And, um, and she was an amateur, wasn't she? She was just a girl she who was, was fascinated. She was 16. She was at Cheltenham Ladies College and she wrote a Christmas card. and She sent it to the Scott Polar Research Institute addressed to Frank Debenham. And he wrote back to her and said, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Please come and stay. So she went to stay and he introduced her to Violet Oates, who is Captain Oates' youngest sister. And uh, after a couple of meetings, Violet, who was in her 80s, said to Sue, there's a trunk under this table and I am just going to go for a walk and you can copy out as much as you like from that trunk. And it was a trunk of all his letters in the diary. So Violet went out for a walk and Sue started copying, but she only had school exercise books. And she was 16, and she was really much more interested in the fact that Captain Oates is really rather gorgeous and a poster boy in her life <laughs> than that he was all these sort of letters and diaries. So now at the Scott Polar, if you go and find the archive material for Captain Oates, it's a lot of school exercise books <laughs> with 16-year-old writing in it. And then actually her mother was a teacher. And when Sue showed her mother her notes, her mother realised this was unbelievable information. So she then copied it out. So some of the information is in Sue's mother's hand. And you've touched all of it. Have you all touched it, yes. Scott's diary? I haven't touched Scott's diary. You wouldn't be allowed. So I remember seeing it when I was at university. Yes. Yes. And it was so yes. moving. So powerful, isn't it? Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for coming in today. It's been really fascinating it's to hear all, all, about, all about your book. And um, best of luck. Thank you very much. And I've got to Thank say, I started reading it and my husband snatched it from me and read it cover to cover and thought it was magnificent. Oh, I'm so pleased. Thank you for saying that. That's just wonderful. I'm really pleased. <laughs> Tim, what's coming out this month to look out for? Well, there's a few paperbacks that have that have come in, some of which we've mentioned previously on the on the programme. Uh, Locked Room by Ellie Griffiths, uh, which is features Dr. Ruth Galloway, her her regular protagonist, and it's set during lockdown, as you might expect from the title. Um, that's coming out in paperback. And it's wonderful. Treacle Walker by Alan Garner, uh, which is on the book along list. He's actually the oldest 
uh, person ever to be on the book along list. Um, he's a famous children's writer, but this is the first time I think he's done a done a fully adult novel. Uh, it's a sort of fusion of myth and an exploration of the fluidity of time, I gather. But Susie, you might know more about it's, this. Well, yes. His daughter is my editor. She reckons it's his breakout novel, which I think is rather wonderful at the age of 87. Fantastic. means there's hope for me yet. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the only adult. I mean, there's things like Red Shift, which was young adult, but the very adult theme. Right, right. Interesting. But anyway, that's just come out in paperback. The Anomaly by Hervé Letellier. Uh, which is part thriller, part alternative reality, fantasy, part literary novel. Uh, I think it's gripping and, and, and fascinating. Um, and won the won the Prix Goncourt in in France. Um, Spymaster by Helen Fry. Now this is non-fiction. This is the story of of Thomas Kendrick, who was junior passport officer in the Viennese embassy, the, the British embassy in Vienna. Um, just before the war. Actually, he wasn't that at all. He was actually a spy. And he set up a whole network of spies all over Europe. But as well as doing that, he arranged passports for hundreds of Viennese Jews um, and enabled them to escape and come to the UK. And I actually know there's two families that I know that have, that wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. So a bit Schindler's List. It's sort of, sort of like a Schindler's List, but, but just subtly different. And, Schindler's and List quite and English. Kinder Transport. And, yeah. So that's, a, that's a, a really fascinating story. So those are the books that are coming out into paperback. New books in hardback this month. Well, we've got uh, the latest Robert Galbraith, otherwise known as J.K. Rowling, her, her series that are um, featuring Robin Ellicott and Cormoran Strike, his two protagonists. And this is the latest in his, in his series. Um, I think they get, seem to get bigger and bigger with each, each volume that comes out. A bit like um, Harry Potter. A bit like Harry Potter. Uh, they've been really mel- well done on telly, actually. Some, some, a good TV series. Um, but that's the latest coming out. Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid. She did uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, uh, which was very entertaining. And she's become a bit of a, a TikTok phenomenon that a lot of people are reading her books now. And that's a new hardback is coming out this are month. Are you on TikTok? Too. I'm not, I'm afraid no, to say. Although Book Talk, which apparently is 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 yeah. really great uh, for getting young people to read interesting new books, so um, all for it. But I'm not. It's the technology it's might be a bit beyond me. Bit beyond me. Um, the Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell is uh, coming out as well this month, and it is. She did Hamlet, which was a, a real breakout novel for her, which sold massive quantities and won lots of prizes. And this one's set in. Renaissance Italy, and um, I've heard good things about it, but it's it's I haven't read it yet. I look forward to that because all her books are very different one from another. Yes, that's right. She 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 just float, float around, mm. um, which I think is good in an author. I think it, I you know it, it authors do the same shtick time after time can get a bit bit boring really. Mm. It's so. like Hilary Mantel, isn't it? They said that she didn't achieve greatness for so long because she was always in different genre. But I agree. I really like experimentation. So our other interview is pre-recorded with Pamela Howard. I met up with Pamela in the garden of her railway carriage home in Selsey for the launch of her memoir, The Art of Making Theatre. It was one of the really, really hot days. She was there with her, he's editor, but really a co-writer, she insists, and someone who is very special to them both, his daughter Stasia. So Pavel Drabek is Professor of Drama and Theatre Practice at the University of Hull. 
He's published Czech translations of Shakespeare um, and has set up and led a Czech professional music and opera company. He loves the opera. That's why he and Pamela have co- collaborated. And she's the, he's the perfect co-editor for Pamela, as you will hear. So first, I would like to introduce uh, Pamela Howard. Uh, who hello. Is, hello. Uh, who is the living legend? <laughs> so they say, and I say better than a dead one. Yeah. Uh, with whom uh, I wrote and had the honour of writing the book The Art of Making Theatre, an arsenal of dreams in 12 scenes. We've known uh, each other for... Ever. Ever, and we've worked on your What is a Sonography for the third edition, and we first met during a production that you directed and did sonography for at the National Theatre in Berlin. That was Bohuslav Martinus' uh, chamber opera, The Wedding, and The Marriage. The Marriage, yes. And uh, uh, we have worked ever since. Yes. And, and are going to. And are going to. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who don't know... Pamela Howard is a world-known, world-leading sonographer uh, working in theatre, making designs, uh, all kinds, and directing works, mostly in theatre, opera and music theatre, whether it's her own pieces or uh, traditional works. When I got the commission from Bloomsbury Books, which was unexpected... I had no idea that someone was going to ring me up and say, I want to commission you uh, to make a graphic memoir. A graphic memoir, that is a memoir of drawings, primarily. Um, I had one thought in my head, which was that my condition would be to work with Pavel Drabek. And... um, I said that um, immediately. And why? Because he's written about me, and we did um, in a, um, an edition in the Czech Republic called Teatralia. Um, he wrote about the production that I did, and probably most love, which was the first version of an opera by Janáček, um, the excursions of Mr. Brocek to the moon. Wonderful. And, um, yeah. So, Pamela, you've said that you wanted Pavel mm, to be your mm. editor. Why? What I wanted, um, I know it's called an editor, but on the front of the book it says with Pavel Dravik. That's more than an editor. This is a memoir. It's just a memory. It might not be true. And what does it matter? So I wanted someone who knew me, but who could also say, um, what about this and what about that? And it wasn't just editing in the, let's say, conventional way. And there's only one person, actually, who could do that, and that was Pavel. And they agreed well, Pavel, yeah. why did you agree? Because it's there's, I, and I know there are so many stories of, uh, they're all so wonderful. How, 
How did you fashion the book? Why did you say yes? So uh, we've known one another with Pamela for a very long time and I think we've had a very kind of productive and lovely uh, friendship and partnership as artists and collaborators. And uh, I wanted to capture those stories because uh, my memory is not perfect. I would like to capture that but it's also Pamela said I don't want to write another memoir ever about all the great and the good that I've met so this is not just a memoir it is called the art of making theatre an arsenal of dreams in 12 scenes because it is about Pamela's life but it is about the life of an artist and that gesture of I'm making theatre that is profoundly connected with my life it is, of course, Pamela's, but that is also a very inspirational story for any artist, for anyone who is taking their art seriously. Or anything creative. Or anything creative, because uh, theatre is only one part of, of that book. It is about drawing. It is about passing on the knowledge. So, for me... I mean, what I loved about working on the book it is, is that it is telling a story about one particular life that is not just full of successes, but also full of uh, rejections, full of complications, full of unexpected serendipities, whether good or bad. And uh, passing that story was something that I loved doing. And uh, I found it very rewarding and from what I hear from our readers they love reading that as well well I'm so grateful to you again for, for now this is a repository of Pamela's stories so that I not only they're expanded so I know much more of the background to them but just to have them it's like a field of dreams I don't know an, an arsenal well, for me right. <clears throat> I, I would like to say we had an an interesting process because in the beginning like we're doing now I just talked to Pavel and he, you recorded it if you remember and then I didn't know how to listen to it but um, <laughs> um, uh, from that I did something I just thought about um, 12 chapters and I did a synopsis of the things that I might write about or we might or I might write about. And from the synopsis, Pavel said, oh, leave that out, but why don't we expand on this? So each chapter had in little italics. I mean, I hadn't written the chapter, but I wrote the synopsis. And I think that was the the moving point forward. Would you agree, Pavel? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> we agreed on, a, on, the, on the structure, what would go there, mm. and of course we kept adding and taking away, also rearranging material. It is loosely chronological, so it starts with a little girl uh, going to see her uncle Louis on down the in London train. on the train. So that's yeah. where it starts, yeah. and it ends roughly in the present time. Yeah. But it's also a story about an artist getting experience, overcoming, uh, overcoming obstacles. obstacles and persevering mm. and it is a story about sustainability about persistence and each of those chapters adds a bit 
It's very that. much to do with identity mm. as well, though, isn't it? Which yeah. I think is, brings it right <coughs> up <coughs> to the present time. Mm. Because we've got, I mean, you two here, the Drabeks, um, living in... <laughs> England, so not like Ukrainian refugees or anything, you've just been able to choose. But I'm really interested in the concept of home and belonging and where do you feel that you're at home? And Pamela, you you had the most extraordinary experience where you, you've alluded to the fact you were then Hoffman. Would you like to say something about what then happened? Because that's essential. There's, um, I don't know who says that, who said this, maybe Primo Levi, it's in my studio. I come from somewhere and I belong nowhere. I feel that, so I've been able to make work in lots of different countries and wherever I go, I feel I'm at home. So it could be, it could be Slovenia, it could, um, no matter where it is. When I was a child, hmm, I lived in a, in this small council house and everybody was shouting all the time and nobody was listening to anybody else and there was a multiplicity of languages. The main one was Yiddish, but it wasn't only that and there was mixtures of Russian and broken English and all sorts of things. But when I heard this, there were two things um, in sound the sound of everybody shouting and my and people coming to this little council house and putting tea in a saucer lemon tea in a saucer and a sugar cube in their mouth and drinking the tea through their teeth but when i grew up as i grew up i never realized that people were meant to understand each other I always thought life was to do with not knowing what anyone was saying. And my family up in Newcastle on Tyne were always shouting and arguing. One minute they were speaking and the next minute they weren't speaking. And I used to hear all this, but go to school and that was English. Pamela said, how can I help you with this? I said, don't worry. Uh, I'll do the index. I love making indexes. It's a strange aberration of mine. <laughs> I was going to ask, because the index is the worst thing. I it's... love it. I love doing that, because uh, I figure out that, that my my mission in life is to try and make order in, in <laughs> immaterial thoughts. Uh, and that's that's what I love doing. So arranging it. So while Pamela said, how can I help you with this? I said, don't worry. I will ask you when I need something. But that's also Pamela's genius, that she went off and did this picture, of, which is a family tree, but it's not only a family tree, it is a, a collage of all the pictures from the graphic memoir, which so is incorporated... Yes. Well, some of them, so it is, it is in a way, a, a scheme of, uh, of the universe that <laughs> takes the book and ties it in with a family tree. And I thought, this is the first page of the index. Yeah. It is, this is really like a code. If someone would like to read this book as a story of Pamela's personal life, they should start with this picture and read it again. It's a visual aid memoir, yeah. isn't it, as well, to look through. It, so it literally is. I'm looking at it now. It's the, it literally starts the index, the, the yeah. page opposite the index. So 
Uh, Pamela, I see that there's a Malka there, which is reminding me very much of a very important event that, in a way, I was alluding to. Do you want to say what happened about Malka, um, i.e. you? In, in Jewish families, you only have names of people who have died, so you carry the names through. You don't invent other names. So this is what, um, in Jewish thinking from biblical times, it's called from generation to generation. And um, the Jewish practice is that um, it is the responsibility of the parents to tell the stories to the children. So you have to tell the story of how Moses took 40 years to get out of the desert. And then when he did go out of the desert and the Red Sea parted, the Israelites wouldn't cross. That's so. That's completely typical. So my father, who came from Devinsk, which is just outside Riga, his um, mother, he was a little baby when he came arrived in England, and he was Joseph Hoffman, and his mother was Malka. So when I was born, it was natural for me to become that person. And my two sisters also carry names of... Uh, so we have English names and we have Hebrew names. And how did you come by your English name? Well, after the war... <clears throat> my father came back from the army end of 46 and he found that with a German surname he couldn't get a job so he decided to change his name and this is absolutely true he went into a phone box and he at that time there were paper directories in the phone box and he opened it at H.O. for Hoffman shut his eyes, put his finger on, opened it, and it said Howard. And he went to the deed pole um, um, place, and then my... I can remember this so clearly. My um, mother and father bought a book, and it was called The English Book of Names. And Malka, they looked for a name that could connect with the with Malka which means in Hebrew queen and um they thought Millicent thank god it wasn't <laughs> they thought Mildred thank goodness it wasn't and then they came across this word Pamela and they thought Malka Pamela and it meant sweetness oh and so my name was also changed by deed because my sisters were not born yet. And so, but nobody told me. And so one day, my father, this is 46, when we'd left Newcastle and gone to a place where no one else wanted to live, he came home and just said, um, you're not Malka Hoffman anymore, you're Pamela Howard. And I went, oh, <laughs> oh, you know, whereas now 
I mean, I think of my own children now and my grandchildren, you would be explaining everything. You'd be going, Staska, you see, what I want you to understand is, and then there would be a whole explanation of it while the child is going, for God's sake, can you hurry up and just tell me what it is? <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> crack on. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't like that. And um, so overnight, I had another name. I thought that was really interesting, Susan. I, th- I particularly thought the, the bit about the the naming, the, the idea that, the, that your name only comes from people who are dead. It, I so, didn't know that. It fascinated me. And the fact that it's the parents' responsibility to pass down the Jewish stories to their children. Yes. That stories are so important. I love that. Absolutely. Well, if, if you'd like to hear more, um, the full interview will be up on our website um, which is fascinating because then um, she and Pavel range over all the important people that she knew, Arnold Wesker and so on, um, and I think that's really fascinating. Now we'll come to our backlist section. Susie, what, do you, what have you chosen this month? Well, extraordinarily, um, I plucked Jaws by Peter Benchley off the shelf, and I find I revisit this when times are bad. And I don't realise that's what I'm doing. Tim's making a face, I have to say. Well, I think, I think of the, uh, the, 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 our, our, our late Prime Minister used to say that he was the, uh, his great hero in literature was the mayor of um, Amityville. Did he actually Amityville? say that? Yep, because he's the one that kept the beaches open. That is extraordinary because one of the, I've missed that completely and amongst the rest of the plethora of his statements, I missed that. Um, because the exact thing I was going to say was this is now a novel de nos jours because when it came out it was just during really the Watergate scandal and that it was Nixon and everybody feeling deeply cynical about politics and that everybody was venal. And I think that, you know, we have a similar feeling now. That's fascinating. Anyway, so I'm holding Jaws by Peter Benchley. Now, this I've discovered, the actual book was written in 1971. And as an impoverished author, I was fascinated to read that Peter Benchley was also an impoverished author. Um, He'd only written one book before. He was a freelance journalist and he was lucky enough to meet an editor for Doubleday, Doubleday um, tasked him, commissioned him, I suppose, to write a book about sharks because he proclaimed himself to be a great amateur researcher into sharks. So, of course, he had to scamper away and quickly become an amateur researcher into sharks. And he wrote the book with a huge advance once he'd given the first five pages. But after that, he wrote a slightly comic novel um, all about the shark and they hated the tone and said to him no we, we want the advance back if you don't actually write something better we're not going to you know let you keep the money well he'd of course already spent it they had eaten their way through the advance which was quite something but um, what fascinated me as well is that Doubleday sold the rights to Banton then a paperback company and together they formulated a great publishing coup um, which was to get it out into a book club. Um, it's, um, there are book club editions, and this is a book club edition. So this came free to my mum's boss, who passed it on to me and said, there you are, you like sharks, read this. I knew nothing about it. 
And the other thing I've discovered, Peter Benchley wanted um, on the cover a shark's mouth open and within its maw to show the Amityville beach. Strangely empty, I have to say, having now seen the film. Um, but anyway, but they didn't like that, so they got the artist that everybody now knows the iconic poster of the shark coming up with open mouth and this female small swimmer happily swimming on the surface of the sea. So that was that. Well, that was a bumper edition too, wasn't it? I really yeah. enjoyed that. It was great, Susie. And if you want to hear any of our past editions, go onto the website, look through Shine Radio, or you can go get download it as a podcast from all the usual places, female Spotify or wherever. Fabulous. See you next month. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. The first ever Petersfield Walking Festival is approaching on foot. I'm Susie Wilde, and Rain and I will be joining Walk 42, Walk with Wheels. It's an inclusive walk for disabled and able-bodied walkers with no styles, gates or steps. And I'll be joined by John Wellsman and his guide dog. I may have my latest canine partner with me too, if she bunks off school. Petersfield's Shine Radio and the Petersfield Walking Festival. Come and meet us all on the 26th of August.